the cleansed conscience. I'll go to the first slide and then read it and then pray. Hebrews 5, 12. For by this time you ought to be teachers. You have a need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. This is where we were last time. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we learn from the exhortations in Hebrews that we might be people who come with confidence to the throne of grace to find help when we need it, who live dependent on you and believe in the sufficiency of our heavenly high priest. Look forward to the day that we'll appear before him. Help us to encourage one another to love and good works. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so going back to this one. Now, I don't remember exactly what I said last time. But it's important to see in this passage that the author of Hebrews is using irony. Okay? When an author uses irony, the meaning is the opposite of what it appears to be. Okay? And so the fact that they ought to be teachers means they have had the instruction. They have been taught. They do know the principles of the truth of the gospel. And so the part in green here, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. That's irony. It's like a high school teacher in calculus telling the students, boy, you're, you're kind of, why don't you go back and learn arithmetic? Two plus two. Well, it's somewhat insulting because they shouldn't already know that, obviously, or they wouldn't got to calculus. Well, it's the same thing here, because how do we know that? William Lane has some good material on this, as he does all of Hebrews, because he makes no effort to actually go back to a rudimentary primer. He goes on and goes forward and does teach them about the, the order of Melchizedek and the high priestly ministry of Christ. And this ABCs of religion, the stoichia, as it's used here, he rukes them about, but didn't actually go and teach them because they know it. All right? Now you might say, what's their problem? What is this milk and solid food? So I have a quote here from Lane. One of the most outstanding commentaries I have on any book of the Bible is Lane on Hebrews. He says this, the biblical interpretation and the presentation of Christology in 1, 1 through 5, 10 presuppose advanced Christian instruction and a level of understanding that corresponds to the adult consumption of solid food and not a diet of milk. So it's like, here's how irony works. You've got a 17-year-old teenager, and you say, do you want me to mix up your formula? Let's get out the Gerbers. So that would be not to be taken literally. It would be an ironic rebuke. Okay? So here are well-taught Christians in the 
teaching in Hebrews is very advanced. It's, it's beautiful. The Greek is some of the most advanced in the entire New Testament. And they know it. They just got tired of it, wanted to hear something else. Does that happen? Is this applicable to any Christians today? Well, I know that it must be because I've run into it in the 40 years I've been in the ministry. I've run into situations where people literally, as I'm teaching verse by verse through the Bible, so we don't want to hear this. It's not practical. Give us something practical. Well, what would be practical? Uh, well, let me give you a little story about this. When I was in seminary, I was getting the job of teaching the high school class at the church. This was in the early 90s. And I wanted to make sure that these high school students were prepared as far as apologetics to go off to college and not lose their faith. And the prevailing ideas that were popular in the early 90s were the earth goddess and radical feminism and eco-feminism, goddess she, all of that. So I was teaching about that, and a, a friend of mine had two daughters in that class. And we were playing golf together, and my friend said, when are you going to teach my daughters about dating? And I said, never. <laughs> well, he said, well, dating's more practical. I said, no, I'm going to prepare them for college so that when they get to, to college, they don't lose their faith. You, you and your daughters can figure out dating. I don't, that's, that's a topic that totally bores me. <laughs> no interest in it. So I kept teaching apologetics. I showed, went into Genesis about God creating the world out of nothing, showed them the polytheistic stories. Well, fast forward, okay? The daughters graduate. They go to college. They go to, like, Carleton or one of these liberal arts schools. And I'm golfing with him again. And he says, thank you for not teaching my daughters about dating. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, when they got to college, the professors were teaching exactly what you warned them about and tried to undermine their Christian faith and teach this, that the white Ural males ruined everything and that you need a female goddess. And they wouldn't listen to it because I'd warned them and they'd seen the material and they'd been convinced of the biblical story. The dating is a transient thing that so comes and goes and go to college. Here's whether you believe Christian truth or not. So God bless him. He came back and thanked me for not doing what he wanted earlier. We have to know here that any preacher, any teacher of the word of God, and any one of us needs to know from God's perspective, what do people really need? Clearly, in Hebrews, they didn't want to hear about the high priestly ministry of Christ. So he rebukes them, calls them babies, and then teaches it to them anyhow, like the fellow's daughters. And we have to know up front, because this is an eternal issue. Souls are hanging in the balance. Whether we're going to believe the gospel or believe the pagans around us, and we better know what's right and not just 
lick our finger and put it up and see which way the wind's blowing, and that's what we're going to teach today. Oh, they want to hear about dating. I don't care. They're not going to hear it from me. Figured that one out. I got to age 20 and got engaged and got married. And so now this summer it'll be 42 years. So I know I look older than that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And so they didn't really need to have a review class. They needed the truth about the ministry of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, listen carefully. This topic is so prominent in the book of Hebrews that we must know that we need it. It must be important. It must be crucial and critical to our salvation and our sanctification. And we need to have it so clearly taught and so clearly in our minds that when we come to the worst that life has to throw at us, nothing will keep us from going to the throne of grace to find grace and help in our time of need. Oh, yes, when I've been in really, really bad shape in the last three years, but never did I get so bad that I couldn't go to the throne of grace and cry out to God to help me, knowing that my Savior Jesus Christ is pleading on my behalf before the throne of God above. It says Lane, this, their regression to intimacy must represent quite a recent development. It was apparently an attempt to sidestep their responsibility in a world that persecuted them and held them in contempt. But it threatened their integrity, he says. The purpose of 5.11 through 6.12, remember the inclusio last week? Dull, dull, and then everything in between is to preserve the community from such aberration by reminding them of what they have experienced and what they possess through the gospel. And it's the duty of every Christian teacher and preacher to remind the saints of what they possess through the gospel. Oh, yes. And when people start saying, oh, how many times do we need to hear that? We want something more practical. It's a sign of spiritual malaise. Because the things we're thinking about will pass away anyhow. And will we be prepared for eternity? Hebrews 5, 13 and 14. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. For he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now, certainly we hear an echo here, good and evil. Where did we hear about that? Garden of Eden? You should be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice the difference. I'm sorry, I stepped on my cord. What's the difference? In the Garden of Eden, Satan says, you'll know good and evil. 
almost as if it were a relational issue. Evil will become near and dear to you. Here, you're distinguishing between the two. See the difference? It's taking the Genesis narrative and adding something necessary because we live after the fall, that we distinguish what's good and what's evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not of the same qualitative category as every other tree. Evil is not the same as good. It says in Isaiah, what are those who call good evil and evil good? Doesn't that sound like our modern day situation? Evil is paraded in front of our eyes daily as good. And if you don't like evil, and you do call it evil, then you come under persecution just like they did. You can't say that's evil. So as Lane, in addressing the community, the writer recognizes only an either-or. The idea of progressive stages or of development and growth toward maturity seems not to have been in his mind. This is not normal pedagogics, in other words, teaching kids, because it acknowledges no alternative except regression to infancy or adult acceptance of responsibility. With biting irony, says Lane, the writer calls the community to acknowledge its maturity, which has both ethical and theological ramifications for responsible life in the world. See, we're under danger of apostasy if we don't want to learn. And I've always resisted the idea that modern, or I should say contemporary Christians aren't capable of learning. You know, I suppose in my mind I'm replaying battles from decades ago, but when I started doing verse-by-verse exegetical Bible teaching, there was a lot of pushback. And when I used technical material, there's even more pushback. Well, you can't expect they're just sheep. They can't, you can't expect they're going to learn any of these things. I've even run, run into that with some radio people here around the Twin Cities. Oh, they can't learn this. Guess what? That falls on my deaf ears. Because I don't believe it. I do not take the attitude that Christians can't learn something. It's really a bad attitude on the part of whoever says it. The author of Hebrews believes that they can, and that's exactly what he's going to teach them. And I believe that we can learn, that we are adults and we can eat solid food and we can understand the high priestly ministry of Christ. And if we can understand Psalm 110 and verse 1, quoted the most of any Old Testament passage in the New, that Christ is seated at the right hand of God, was raised from the dead and ascended on high. Why can't we understand Psalm 110 and verse 4? Is it harder to understand? Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Ho hum, ho hum. Where's Robert Schuler when you need him? Five steps to being happy. Well, I'll tell you what. The high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ does make me happy. Because I don't trust me, but I trust him. And I believe that he's praying for me. Think of the ramifications that'll keep you from running to the Virgin Mary. 
because you don't believe she's the intermediator because only one is, and that's Christ. Well, it may seem obvious to us, but there's an awful lot of millions of people it's not obvious to, and we need to be grounded in the truth and not lethargic about learning the gospel. So what's going to be a result of being trained in the word of, what is the word of righteousness? Well, it's the gospel and everything attendant to it. What's the result of that? Maturity and the ability to have discernment. Every once in a while I get an email from somebody who says, well, I have the gift of discernment. What do you mean? Well, they go to a meeting and a little buzzer goes off. Well, guess what? We don't have a little buzzer. We need to learn the gospel. The buzzer might not go off. and You might hear some false teacher and think it sounds great. You've got to know the details so that you can judge, not just have a subjective feeling. Let's go to now fast forward into Hebrews 7. Okay, I've got the Greek with me. Last time I didn't have my Greek in it and I felt bad that I didn't or felt badly. Got it here, though. Hebrews 7, 25 to 27. Oh, this is good. I hope you're excited about it now. I hope I primed the pump to get you excited. Thanks, Rich. Wait until you see what this means. And looking at it in the Greek it makes it even more powerful. Hebrews 7, 25 to 27. Therefore... Now, this is after that inclusio, uh, which is a warning about dullness. Now it goes forward here. It says, therefore, he is able to save forever. And I'll talk about that. Those who draw near, technical terminology in the Greek, very important, draw near. Don't forget that idea. To God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting... For us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests now in the Old Testament to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all, when he offered up himself. How much theology is there in this section? You have soteriology, Christology, eschatology, ecclesiology. Well, we've got four major branches of theology explained right here. This is sine qua non of what we believe, uh, without which not, is what that means in the Latin. you got to have this. You don't have this, you don't have biblical Christianity. You don't have this, you don't have the gospel. You don't have this, you'll go running back to Rome. Oh, yes. The Catholic Church in our town, I can hardly drive, I have to drive past it now every time I go for medical attention because of the construction on 7 in Louisiana. It's packed, not just on Sundays or Saturdays. Every day is packed. Bumper stickers, I love my priest. They can't get enough of it. Oh, the vestments and the smells and the incense, all of this stuff. 
If you knew this, you would not go there. So you don't need a priest. We have the high priesthood of Christ and the priesthood of every believer. And those people won't be able to go to God because they're not allowed to. They're just dutifully jumping through the hoops the church tells them to jump through. And they like it that way. Now let's talk about salvation. Oh, here's, yeah, soteriology. Therefore, he's able to save forever. Now, here the New American Standard probably didn't have the best translation because it takes the term and limits it by time. But here's what's interesting about that in in the Greek. We can take a term that's limited by time forever or not limited by time, or we can take one that has to do... Oh, okay. We have one that has to do with quality in other things besides time. And it turns out the King James probably has the best translation. He is able to save to the uttermost. This extent of salvation and its benefits extends both to time and to other qualities. And so you have a word teles, which means to come to completion, with the prefix pon, which means all, all complete. So he's able to save means to deliver. So he's delivering us in a most comprehensive and extensive manner that there can possibly be. Save to the uttermost. It's not just time, though that's included. Save completely, but it doesn't seem to do justice to the Greek. Uttermost, I like that. Do you see that? But who is it that he saves? Just anybody? Well, no, there, it's, it's just some. Those who draw near to God through him. You have to come to God through the gospel. Now, draw near is one of those themes in Hebrews that's very exciting, and it would be worthy of an article in and of itself. How is it that we draw near to God? Do we walk a prayer labyrinth, and then we, when we get to the middle, we're near to God? We do it through Christ. That's as close as we can get. Right at the right hand of God is our intercessor. And we come to him on his terms. This is the means of grace. I think I quoted this in somewhere, but in, in our building when we were downtown, people would, you know, use the front steps as their little home to, to pass out at night. And they'd go get cardboard from cross street and build a little cardboard place to live in overnight right on the front steps. So I'd be getting there early uh, uh, to uh, try to get, get it set up so people could actually come to church. So I asked this guy, why do you build your cardboard shanty right in front of our front door here? And he said, it makes me feel closer to God. I said, well, you need the gospel for that. You can only come to God through Christ. See, the building isn't closer to God. The front door of the building isn't closer to God. The vestments... The icons 
all of that stuff, that the altar, all the stuff you might see in a church building is not closer to God. You don't draw near to God through religious superstition. You draw near through Jesus Christ and him alone. Brian. Also an element of the doctrine of election in there because you would have the drawer and the drawee. <laughs> well, that's true. Uh, here's what draw near. Let me look that up here in my Greek. Oh, proserkomai. Oh, yeah, proserkomai. Now, if you look these words up in the Greek and do, do a search in the Septuagint, what you find with this draw near is a technical term that was used in Torah to describe the Levitical priesthood drawing near on the Day of Atonement. Okay? So the writer of Hebrews takes terminology that they would have known from the Old Testament and applies it to us. There, only the priest could draw near, and that only once a year, but we can draw near through Christ every day. Yes? I'll give you another example regarding the Passover. I recently studied this. Um, Exodus twelve forty three through 49, at about verse 48, Moses is talking, uh, talking about the ordinance of Passover. If a stranger shall sojourn with you, with the Israelites, and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near uh-huh. and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. So God had his requirement to draw to near, draw near yeah. and that was the only way you could draw near. But it's interesting that there was a provision even back then for non-Israelites yeah, What that meant for them near. was they could be in the camp. Okay, so in Leviticus, being in the camp meant you had a holy God in your midst and you kept getting yourself unclean because life would make you unclean. But, uh, but this, we're going to look at the scapegoat. Oh, right here, I got it. Look at this. Who is a very strong-voiced, articulate reader? Mike, what you're going to do is look up, and you can all turn to this, Leviticus 16, starting with verse 15. And we'll read through 22. So we've got seven verses. This is about the Day of Atonement and what was necessary to draw near under that old covenant under Torah. 15 through 22 of Leviticus 16. <clears throat> okay. I'm reading from the Holman's Christian good. Study Bible Standard. Okay. When he slaughters the male goat for the people's sin, uh, sin offering and brings its blood inside the veil, he must do the same with its blood as he did with the bull's blood. He is to sprinkle it against the mercy seat and in front of it. He will purify the most holy place in this way for all their sins because of the Israelites' impurities and rebellious acts. He will do the same for the tent of meeting that remains among them because it is surrounded by the by their impur, impur, impurities. Thank yeah. you. It's, 
no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the most holy place until he leaves after he has made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole assembly of Israel. Then he will go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He is to take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on the horns of all sides of the altar. He is to sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse and set it apart from the Israelites' impurities. When he has finished purifying the most holy place, the tent of meeting, in the altar, he is to present the live male goat. Aaron will lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the Israelites' wrongdoings and rebellious acts, all their sins. He is to put them on the goat's head and send it away into the wilderness by the man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on it all their, all their wrongdoings in the desolate land, and he will release it there. Very good, Mike. Good reader. Do you want to bring the mic over to Eric just because I'm probably going to ask him something? Now, we have in that section there of Leviticus 16, 15 through 22, something that's necessary to understand if you're going to understand the arguments in Hebrews. Because notice how this blood had to cleanse not just the people, but even the items in the tent of meeting. And the horns and the mercy seat, everything had to be cleansed with blood. And you see that in Hebrews. But there was also another thing going on because there was the laying of hands on the live goat. Confession of sins is sent out into the wilderness. Eric, what is, what's the point of all of this? Yeah, the great point here, Bob. This is a great reference. Um, Hilsterian, first of all, let me just point out to people the term mercy seat in the Greek. If you're going to read the Septuagint, the term is Hilsterion. Uh-huh. Well, Bob has pointed out this numerous times. When you read the New Testament, that's our term for propitiation. So the, the verb is halaskami, the noun is hilsterion. Oops, sorry. So you have the idea of propitiation. Amen. So what Bob is referring to here then is you have the high priest who goes in to the Holy of Holies, and he offers the blood of the animal on the mercy seat, the propitiation seat. And the idea is that the Shekinah dwelling of God, the dwelling presence was above the mercy seat, and he was angered because of the broken law. But once the blood of the animal is poured upon the mercy seat, he is appeased. His wrath is turned away because of the shed blood. Well, of course, we know from Hebrews 10.4 that the blood of bulls and goats can never remove sin. So it foreshadowed the fact that Messiah would one day do this. But what Bob is pointing out is there was also a goat that is led off into the wilderness. So think of the animal that's slain, that's propitiation. God is appeased. But when the goat who is alive is led out into the wilderness, that's the symbol that the sins have been led away from the people. That's expiation. So you and I have both. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, we have propitiation. God is appeased. That's God-centered. But we also have expiation, that are our sins are removed. Remember David says in yeah. Psalm 103, as far away as the east is from the west. Yep. All there, done in Christ, as he's pointing Yeah, out. there's two different words in the Greek. Yep. The one is based on a mercy seat, the helisterion, right. propitiation, propitiatory. The sinner who prayed, God be merciful to me, the sinner, the word merciful is 
propitious. And then expiation, katharizo, means cleansing. So God's wrath is averted. Our consciences, the inner person, are cleansed. And we have continual access, unlike the high priest, unlike the Israelites, we have continual access to the ultimate high priest, the one who was innocent, undefiled, separated for sinners. You couldn't really say that about Aaron and his sons. Exalted above the heavens. This is living reality for us. So in the greatest possible sense we can imagine for the removal of our sins, we can go and find both the aversion of God's wrath against our sin and the cleansing of our conscience so we're cleansed from the inside out and so that we are in the best possible standing that we'll be in until eternity. And this is true for the priesthood of all believers. So one of the things I've been fighting against for years is the pietist idea that there are two categories of Christians, the better ones and the worst ones. That's not what we're learning here. Are there some Christians that can't go to the throne of grace because they're not good enough? That's nonsense. But, you know, religious leaders want to create the categories because then they always have the key to get from the worst state to the better one by jumping through their hoops. And Luther wanted to make sure nobody could do that to the dear saints. And he taught these things and taught the priesthood of every believer from Peter. We all can go. Now notice, so we have draw near, save to the uttermost. And now we have another theme, once for all. Epophox, which is hopox, once and ever again with epi to intensify it. At least that's how I read it in the Greek. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. So there's no other offering that ever can or ever will be acceptable to God than the once for all offering of Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless, innocent high priest who makes intercession for us. He always lives to make intercession for us. So now we know that Messiah is praying for us. Can you think of somebody better than that? We need one another, and we'll see that. I don't know if I'll get through all my slides, but which is important. And we do pray for one another. But the ultimate prayer that's ever uttered on our behalf comes from Messiah himself. Do you think God answers Messiah's prayers? Are you comforted? Would you rather have me teach about dating? <laughs> I think I'll stick with this one. Let's go to Hebrews 9, 9 and 10. I'm giving an overview here. I I realize I've already taught through Hebrews. They had it recorded and put on the Internet twice, but this is a, a review and an overview. What about the conscience? What's that all about? Hebrews 9, 9, and 10, and I'm quoting from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. 
This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of restoration. Now, if you look at this carefully, when I've taught Hebrews, I've taught it from the the supposition that it was written before 70 A.D. and that the offerings were still going on at the temple. Now, the issues brought up in Hebrews have to do with the Old Testament tabernacle, but there were still offerings at the temple. So here it says, the present time gifts, sacrifices are offered, probably at the temple now. So think about the little ragtag church. Think about the day of Pentecost. Think about what we learned in Acts 2, 41 and 42. Peter preached the gospel, 3,000 are saved. Many, many more than that weren't. They were there for a pilgrim feast. They had the pomp, the circumstance, the smells, the bells, the sights. They were able to worship God with all five senses as emergent as they want to do. And here's this little ragtag bunch of Christians gathered under the apostles' teaching, prayer, breaking of bread. They gathered together in their little group, prayed for one another, encouraged one another, explored the joys and glories of their mutual salvation. And going on right there as they're doing that is all of this temple service. And that looks really good. Let me bring it into the present. Imagine there's this big, huge Catholic church with spires and stained glass windows and the best priest you can get and the best vestments money can buy to put on that priest. And all of the utterances and the absolutions and the incense. You can worship God with five senses. It's all right there. Woe to you if you have asthma. And across the street is a little fellowship with no money, no pomp and circumstance. All they have is to gather together under the apostles' teaching, breaking bread, and prayer. It doesn't look like they have much. It doesn't look very exciting. But which one actually is bringing us to God. That's what we need to know. That's why we need faith. Uh, Ryan Hobbin, I did a good job Wednesday night talking about that. He went into Hebrews a little bit. We need to believe that we're going to the throne of grace. We don't have somebody that looks like they're halfway there for us. We have the priesthood of every believer. Humans will always want a holy man. They want a shaman. And that will separate them from their money a lot. Send me your money and I'll go to God. Remember that guy that turned out to be a flim-flam man? (laughs) He was the one who only had one sermon. He was on TV 
saying the widows should send him their money, and then he was like Elijah, and their crews of oil wouldn't go empty. And then he had these prayer things that he had as a, on his set, all these prayer requests. Oh, every one of these I'm pouring over, and I'm going to go to God, and you're going to get your answer. And they did an investigative news thing about the guy, and they found out that they had hired this whole office full of clerics. They were opening these prayer requests, taking out the money, and making piles of them, and all the prayer requests went in the dumpster. And the money went to the false preacher. He ended up being caught and sent to jail by the federal government. But, see, they, these poor widows, they were sending him their might, their last dollar, thought that he was a holy man who could go to God for them. They thought that his prayers would probably do better than theirs because he could do it so well on TV. They didn't really believe that they could bring prayers directly to the throne of grace. This guy was a scoundrel. He had a $100 million parsonage with a yacht sitting in front of it. And he had no conscience because he really wasn't a Christian. What I'm sharing with you today will keep you from being taken advantage of. Jesus Christ is actually at the right hand of the Father. He actually makes intercession for us. Oh, some people might think this seems quaint. It wasn't just quaint to Stephen, was it? When he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Stephen believed that Jesus Christ was interceding for him, and he believed that as they stoned him, he was going to go to be with his Lord. Hard-hearted, Paul sat and watched that. And what he got from Stephen's gospel preaching was, I need to go kill these Christians, they're dangerous. But God had another idea, didn't he? Cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. Conscience... If you look that one up, sunadasis, it's the whole inner person whereby we either turn to God or turn against him. What William Lane calls what God did, decisive purgation. Let me quote Lane. The provisions of decisive purgation extending to the conscience and the free access to the heavenly sanctuary through Christ, throw into bold relief what the cultic that meant within their religion, what they did, provisions of the old covenant could not achieve. They had to do it over and over and over again, always getting defiled, always being unholy. Jesus did this once for all. And he doesn't just cleanse the outer person He cleanses the inside. He cleanses our conscience. We might be ashamed and feel like, you know, I'm really too bad. I can't really go to Christ. I better have a find a holy man somewhere, a shaman to say some good, some things over over me. And maybe I'll be better and then I could go. But it's telling us here that we can go directly to the throne of grace and find grace and help. Find victory over sin. 
find the joy of the Holy Spirit, find what we need. Those sacrifices may have been tangible. They may have used all five physical senses, but they can't perfect the conscience. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. But the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come. Now, you might notice a translation issue. Some versions have good things that will come. Now, it's a Greek issue, a manuscript issue. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Wow, is this loaded? What do we learn? First of all, Jesus is the high priest. There's one high priest, and then the priesthood of every believer. And these good things have come. I think that has the best manuscript evidence and certainly fits best with the context. Because all of the washings, purgations, regulations that they had under the old covenant system of worship that were so burdensome, have been fulfilled and done away with in Christ, and he gives us access to God once for all. So the good things have come. The greater, more perfect tabernacle is Christ himself. He entered the most holy place. How often? Once for all. Why does it keep saying once for all? Once and never again. Is decisive, as Lane says, decisive purgation. I wrote an article, we, we mentioned this on the radio the other day. I wrote an article when I got Christianity Today sent to me through the mail by somebody, a reader, and it showed Catholic icons and evangelicals are going back to Rome. They were dissatisfied with evangelical Christianity so they conscripted Dallas Willard and Richard Foster and living and breathing monks and nuns, and they went back to Rome. They want to have the warm, fuzzy feelings. They want to recreate the idea of the monastery. And so I wrote an article, you can find it on CICMinistry.org, why evangelicals are going back to Rome, the rejection of sola scriptura, scripture alone. And so I published it, and I thought, good, they'll be ashamed of themselves. Oh, no. Christianity Today and its readers were not at all ashamed. They were proud of it. And I started getting phone calls and emails from one guy I went to seminary with said, I did go back to Rome, and I don't believe in Sola Scriptura. And they challenged me. He said, show me in the Bible where it says Sola Scriptura. I said, well, what about the faith once for all delivered to the saints? Not once and then the council and then the creed and then another council and then the teaching magisterium and then the pope. No, once for all. Rich, get the mic. I can't help but think what's so appealing about the Catholic Church. They really believe that the priest of that parish, he has the power to call once for all. He has the power to call Jesus Christ off his throne in heaven to come down and bleed and be crucified all over again. Every time there's a mass, he's bleeding constantly. 
What is so appealing about that, having a Christ that's constantly being called by the priest to come off his throne and to bleed and be tortured again? The same issue, tangibility. You see, you hear, you smell, you feel. Somebody's doing it for you. What a weak Jesus. What a weak Jesus. They don't see it that way. Let me, and so I got these, I ended up debating Sola Scriptura with people that should have known about it. Now, let's go back, okay? I'm teaching means of grace. You may wonder why I'm doing this. Well, because this covers both the word of God and prayer as means of grace. Because the unwillingness to learn the word was the danger for apostasy. And prayer is grounded in the high priestly ministry of Christ that is revealed in the word, particularly in Hebrews. Now, let's think about it. Remember, if you were here, when the very first lecture on means of grace, I talked about Naaman, the leper. And what did we learn from the story of Naaman? He went because he heard there was a God in Israel with a prophet who could cleanse the leper, which was Elisha, and the God is Yahweh. And he went with his royal entourage, and Elijah said, well, go dip in the Jordan seven times. Remember that story? So that, in a sense, became means of grace for that one guy because the authoritative prophet spoke for God, told him to go do that. And he got offended because they have better water where he's from than they had in the Jordan River. And he was going to leave with his leprosy. And his servant talked in sense into him and said, what if the man of God, what, what do you expect? Well, he's going to wave his hands over me, do some, something. Well, he told you a simple thing. Why don't you just go do it? Oh, I never thought of that. You see, our fallen sinful nature wants somebody to wave their hands around and pronounce something over us. Maybe this priest with his vestments has got something I don't have. I know I'm a mess. I know I've got sin, and I know I'm full of guilt. But I can show up and do my duty and do everything they tell me to do, and maybe this guy's better. Well, it turns out many of them were molesting children all these scandals. Well, it doesn't matter because it's not the individual, it's the whole institution. We prefer to believe this guy is better. But what about the simple that's provided by God with the promise? You're going to be like Naaman and just go dip seven times and walk away with no leprosy? Are you going to go to the throne of grace with your, in your time of need and believe in Jesus Christ whose blood was shed once for all? who cleanses us on the inside. Nobody has to sprinkle anything on us. It's all done on the inside in our conscience. And we'll have access to God because we're part of the priesthood of every believer. Do you want that? Or do you want a holy man all dressed up? Well, for most people, they'd rather have the holy man. As absurd as it is. But somehow Naaman didn't think it was absurd to walk away from Elisha with his leprosy. So he went in and cleansed the holy place once for all. Doesn't have to be done again. Not by goats and calves. Mike read that section from Leviticus 16. But by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Let me read a little lane. 
he entered the presence of God, says Lane, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. The result of his cultic action was not the limited recurrent redemption of the annual, annual atonement ritual. He obtained eternal redemption. Eschatological finality characterized his ministration. Wow, I like that. Eschatological finality, redemption, ransoms paid, were brought close to God. Now the cleansing of the conscience. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. For if, now we have a lesser to greater argument common in Hebrew thinking. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? When you see that, now you know for sure it's the lesser to greater. You don't have to guess. How much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. How much more? They were temporarily okay, but it didn't last. But we're eternally forgiven, redeemed, cleansed. But the high priest forever lives to make intercession for us, and we always have access to the throne of grace. And this is found throughout Hebrews. Don't you think we should teach it? Most of us are too old to worry about dating anyhow. But nevertheless, (laughs) I think we should teach this. (laughs) Lane has a good definition of sunodesis, the Greek for conscience. Conscience, sunodesis, is the human organ of the religious life embracing the whole person in relationship to God. It is the point at which a person confronts God's holiness, the ability of the defiled conscience to disqualify someone from serving God has been superseded by the power of the blood of Christ to cleanse the conscience from defilement. The purpose of purgation is that the whole community may be renewed in the worship of God. So when we're talking about Acts 2.42, all of this should be right here in our mind. We're not just going to a bingo meeting. We're going to meet Christ, our high priest, and encourage one another to love and good works, to learn about our mutual salvation, And woe to us when we think this is impractical, we don't need to hear it. Boy, if you want to get a negative reaction from Eric and I, just say that. (laughs) Once you think that way, well, for one thing, why is the author of Hebrews wasting all this ink if it's not important? Another thing, as soon as you think that way, you'll end up with the church's agenda filled with human wisdom. You'll have the seeker movement. 
or you'll have emergent. The seeker movement offers human wisdom for everything. Emergent offers worship of the five senses, but no theological content to speak of. It's important anyhow. What we have is cleansed consciences. It says laying the effectiveness of the blood of Christ derives from the qualitatively superior character of his sacrifice. His sacrifice achieved what the old, I'll say religion, could not accomplish, namely, namely decisive purgation of the conscience and the effective removal of every impediment to the worship of God. <laughs> every impediment. Now, let's go back. Back up just a bit and we'll be done here. I'm going to get through seven slides. The holy man with the vestments. Why do people want that? Because they know in their hearts they're not right. And they haven't been given any way to get that way. And they figure if they give their money and their time and their effort to the holy man, who maybe he's better than we are, something good may come out of it. And if we want to be preserved from that sort of thing, and it isn't just Roman Catholic, you can get this in just about any version of Christianity. Somebody will come up with a holy man who's an intermediary between man and God besides Christ. We need to know this. Our consciences are cleansed. Our sin is covered and expiated. Taken out into the wilderness with the goat. Only it's Christ that took it. And any time and any moment in our worst possible state that we could possibly land in, at that state, apparent hopeless despair, because of the blood of Jesus, we can come to God for intercession at the right hand of God. How real and practical that is. Nothing is more practical. Well, I'm too sinful. I can't possibly go. But it bids us come. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Cleanse our consciences. Cleanse the defilement. Give us reason to pray for ourselves and one another. To gather together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we're allowed to see these glorious things that are spelled out in your word. And may they have their impact upon us that we might be those who continually come before you because your blood has cleansed us once for all. And we thank you, dear Lord Jesus. In thy holy name, we pray. Amen.